0: I was watching the Super Bowl this past February, you know, that's where they run the game in between the commercials, and I'm waiting for the newest one from Doritos or Budweiser or Coca-Cola, and this unusual music begins to play, and on the screen, maybe you have saw it as well, adorable shots of children. Hugging each other, helping each other. Little kid's got her arm around the family dog. We're starting to think, what is this? so different than the other Super Bowl commercials. There's going to be some catch at the end, right? And eventually the words come up, Jesus did not want us to act like adults. Dot, dot, dot. He gets us. It's a heartwarming riff on Jesus teaching about being childlike. And I liked it. This is the Super Bowl. I assume hundreds of millions of people are watching. And this 30-second spot comes up commending Jesus. I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. Yes, let's commend Jesus. And then second half, another... Commercial comes up, this one's 60 seconds, it's longer, a little darker music. This has got pictures of adults demonstrating manifest outrage and hatred. They're like up in each other's faces. All these images are from the last three years. Maybe they were all from 2020. And then the message comes up, Jesus loved the people we hate. He gets us. And I thought, "Ouch!" And yeah these ads are from a nonprofit looking to put Jesus in the middle of culture, they say. They paid 20 million dollars during the Super Bowl for those two ads. And they say they have a plan to spend about three billion over the next two and a half years or so. And so maybe like me, you've seen some more of these ads? Sometimes I like them. Other times I cringe a little bit and concerned that maybe that angle would skew the truth about Jesus for the audience. So some of those messages have been: Jesus was judged wrongly. Jesus had strained relationships too. Jesus welcomes the weird. Jesus was fed up with politics too. Jesus invited everyone to sit at his table. Jesus chose forgiveness. And last week, I took my twin sons to their first ever wild hockey game at the X. And there's a hockey he gets us. Have I seen the hockey he gets us? And then we got hockey players in this church. On those thin digital screens around the sides of the arena, it says... Jesus had great lettuce, too. You know what lettuce is in that context? Apparently it's hockey hair. That's what lettuce is. I had to check this with my boys. I texted Peter who played hockey in high school. He confirmed lettuce is the term for hockey hair. I wonder if Jesus with great lettuce might represent a little mission drift for he gets us. Honestly, it doesn't speak to me very deeply. I think I would be ministered to by hearing that Jesus also was balding. <laughs> Isaiah said no form or majesty that we should look at him. I mentioned he gets us because Hebrews 2 is a he gets us passage. You can hardly avoid it in moving through the second half of Hebrews 2. But it's also clear He not only gets us, He saves us. He helps us. He rescues us. He doesn't just stand apart and say, oh yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. He comes to the rescue. Getting us on its own doesn't do us a whole lot of good. Yes, He gets us. He really does. And this is a slice of what we celebrate in Advent, that He gets us. But it's not the whole of Advent joy. In Advent, we celebrate that He helps us, saves us, changes us, lifts us. We celebrate He became man, fully human, not just to be one of us, but to save us. Now verse 10 in Hebrews 2 has a name for Jesus that I have come to love over the years. And it's really hard to find an equivalent in English for this word. Sometimes there's Greek words that preachers just can't avoid mentioning until Christians learn Greek words along the way, like koinonia, that means fellowship. I want to mention one here. I don't do this every week, but I want to mention one here. Jonathan did a great job with this word back when we went through this passage in February. The ESV has the word founder. I think that's a really good translation. That's about as good as you can do in English. God makes the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. But I want to fill out that meaning just a little bit for us as we begin today. The Greek word is archagos. Maybe I'll say it enough times you'll remember it. Archagos, And it's built on this Greek word arche, which means beginning. In the beginning, in the arche. So archegos, we might translate as originator, or we might translate it as beginner. It's based on begin, he's the one who does the beginning, he's the beginner. The only problem is, in English, we use the word beginner for something else. We talk about a beginner as a person who's just starting to learn a skill or take part in an activity, rather than someone who's like a founder, the founder of the city. Or, more like pioneer, that's another good good term here for R.K. Goss, beginner. The beginner, in this sense, is a leader who goes first and then others follow after him. Like Aragorn, riding out to battle at the front of the line, people following after him. He doesn't just go first into uncharted territory, but he goes first into battle, into action, into life. So champion, could be a good translation, or hero, archegos. And this is a champion that we don't just watch from afar and cheer like the Super Bowl, but we're connected to him. We come with him. He leads, and we come behind him in his wake. He doesn't just fight for us. He leads the charge, and we come in his steps. So Jesus as our archegos, is both our hero and He's our example. He's the beginner in that He births this people called the church, the new creation. And He leads us into battle, and He rescues us through faith in Him. And then also, He inspires us as our model. We come in His steps. We live like Him. We benefit from what He does for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And yet, in His work for us, He opens up a path that we might follow after Him. That's our archegos. And Advent is where our beginner begins, so to speak. That is, Advent is the beginning of His humanity and His getting us and His saving us and His helping us. Now, Advent's not the beginning of His person but the beginning of his humanness. So let's walk here with Hebrews chapter 2 through the Advent story of our beginner, our champion, from the very beginning up until right now, in this moment, his story. And there are four distinct stages here in the drama of Hebrews chapter 2. You can call this four movements in the story of Advent. Number one, Jesus did not start like us. Jesus did not start like us. That is, our champion, our beginner, our archegos, did not begin like we did. His person was not created. Our person is created. We haven't existed from eternity past. There was a moment where God created our person But Jesus is a divine person, the second person of the eternal threeness, trinity. His humanity was created, conceived in Mary's womb, born in Bethlehem, but His person was not created. The book of Hebrews begins with some glimpses into Jesus' godness. If you flip right over to chapter 1, before there's any world, any creation, He existed and is appointed the heir of all things. Then also, through him, God the Father made the world. And he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's distinct from Father. Son and Father are distinct. Radiance of glory. And yet share in the same nature, exact imprint of his nature. And it goes on. Verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, as only God does. So the story of Advent begins before time, before creation, before the beginning. Jesus himself is God. And if you have eyes to see it, it is everywhere in the New Testament. Sometimes we think, oh, we we need to find these verses that say Jesus is God. There are those verses, that's just not where the case hangs. So let me give you just a five-point summary here from a recent book by a good scholar, a guy named Greg Lanier at RTS Orlando. His book's called, Is Jesus Truly God? And what he does is he sums up five other ways than just the New Testament saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is God in that very unpoetic, straightforward way. Here's five other ways where you can see the divinity of Christ on essentially every page of the New Testament. One, He's preexistent before His advent, before creation. We already saw that in Hebrews 1. Number two, He is the unique Son of the Heavenly Father, eternally begotten, not begun in time. Number three, He's called Lord, That is huge in the first century among Jews, because Lord refers to God's Old Testament covenant name, Yahweh, and He's called Lord over and over again. Number four, He receives worship. Number five, He relates to the Father and the Spirit in a way that reveals His person as one of the divine threeness. So, let's get this clear before we move on to talk about Jesus' humanity and about His getting us. In Jesus, a man did not become God. Rather, God became man. And so we say Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. But when we say that, we don't mean that He became God and man at the same time. He always was God. And he became in the incarnation, in Advent, human. There's this profound asymmetry in the story of the God man. He's been God for all eternity, and he became man at the first Christmas. So, number one, Jesus did not start like us. Number two, Jesus was made like us, he was made. Like us. And so now we come to the first advent and that first Christmas when God made God in the image of God. Without ceasing to be God, God the Son took on our humanity. He added humanity to his divine person. Humanity, think about this for me, with me for a minute here. A little philosophical, try to stay with it. Humanity, as a created nature, is compatible with uncreated divine nature. Very important point. Deity and humanity are not a zero-sum game. They're not mutually exclusive. The Son did not have to jettison any of His eternal deity, as if that's even possible, to take on humanity. Humanity uncreated deity and created humanity operate at different levels of reality, you might say. So without ceasing in any way to be fully God, the Son took on our created human nature and became fully human. So verse 17 says, he was made like his brothers in every respect. Look at verses eleven to fourteen. Four, he who sanctifies—that's Jesus. He's the one who sanctifies us, makes us holy, and those who are sanctified—that's us, it's church Christians—all have one source. Literally, they're from one, one humanity, one nature. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And we'll come back to verse 14 in a minute. But let me just say about these Old Testament quotations from Psalm 22, Isaiah 8. Pastor Jonathan just handled them so well in February. February 12 is a sermon. Go back and listen to it. Just hit the home run out of the park. And so I don't need to go back and even summarize the meaning. It's pointing to Jesus' solidarity with us in our suffering, which we'll come to. For our purposes here, flesh and blood in verse 14 refers to our humanity. It's a way of talking about us as human, flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. And so Jesus became one of us. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 is going to add to that without sin. Very important point. Sin is not an essential part of what it means. To be human. Adam was human before he sinned. And Jesus was human, fully, without sinning. And one day, in Him, we'll be human, glorified human, without sin. Jesus was fully human, made like us in every respect and without sin. So then, here's the question for us. So the big thing to tackle here under point number two, what's included in this every respect? The every respect of our human nature. I love rehearsing this during Advent, one of my favorite things to do during Advent is rehearse Christology, especially Jesus' humanity. So what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human like us? One of the biggest moments in church history in those early centuries is that this place called Chalcedon near Constantinople, Istanbul today, where bishops from all over the world gathered to say collectively what the scriptures teach about the humanity of Christ, to put it into succinct, memorable formulations. And the Chalcedonian Creed says that Jesus is Perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body. His humanity, in sum, a rational soul and body. Let me fill that out. Jesus has a fully human body. The Word became flesh, which means at least He took a human body. Jesus was born, and He grew, and He grew tired, and He became thirsty, and He became hungry, and He ate, and He suffered, and He died, and His human body was raised and glorified, and He sits right now on Heaven's throne in risen, glorified humanity. He didn't get rid of his humanity when he rose again. He rose again in his humanity. Now glorified. But becoming fully human also involved a rational soul. What's that? You have a rational soul. It's Like the the inner person. Including human emotions. So Jesus marveled. HE EXPRESSED SORROW. HE WAS DEEPLY MOVED, SAYS JOHN 11, IN HIS SPIRIT AND GREATLY TROUBLED, AND HE WEPT AND HE REJOICED AND WAS HAPPY. AND SO JOHN CALVIN SAID, MEMORABLY, CHRIST HAS PUT ON OUR FEELINGS ALONG WITH OUR FLESH. BUT RATIONAL SOUL IS MORE THAN JUST EMOTIONS. A RATIONAL SOUL ALSO MEANS A HUMAN MIND in addition to a divine mind. This is where it really begins to fry our categories and experience as humans. So Jesus increased in wisdom, not just in stature in Luke 2. And then most strikingly, this is the one that sticks out. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says about his second coming, he says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun but only the Father? You mean Jesus? You don't know something? With respect to his humanity, his human mind, there are things he does not know. The human mind is limited. It's finite, like ours. Yet, at the same time, for this unique two-natured person there is one two-natured person in the universe and for him he knows all things with respect to his divine mind as one-natured humans this just breaks the categories for us we don't have experience for this we can't understand how it be true but for the unique God-man the one two-natured person this is a special glory. The divine mind and the human mind are not incompatible. We just don't know the experience of how that works. And so, too, with Jesus' human will. He has a human will in addition to the divine will. So he says in John six thirty eight, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So... Jesus here is is speaking with respect to his human will, and he says, I don't do my own will as man, but I come from my Father's will, the divine will, and that divine will, while not proper to Jesus' humanity, is proper to his person as God. So when he prays in, in Gethsemane, not as I will, Father, but as you will. He aligns his human will with the divine will, which is also his as God. So, Jesus has a fully human body and emotions and mind and will. And verse 11 says that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed. To call you brother, sister. Jesus could have been a brother in our nature and yet have been ashamed to call us brothers. Maybe you have observed or known brothers like that, especially teenage brothers perhaps. But mark this, Jesus is not that kind of brother. He is not ashamed of his younger siblings. He's not worried that our weaknesses and our maturities, even our follies, are going to mar his reputation. He doesn't feel like he's stuck with us, and he's embarrassed by us. I really needed to hear that this week. As a dad, as a pastor, as a friend, I feel the temptation to be ashamed of someone whom I'm closely associated with, is maybe acting with folly, misbehaving. But I want to be like Jesus is with me. I want to be like this as a dad. I want to be like this as a friend. I want to be like this as a pastor, not mainly concerned about how others' behavior reflects on me, but mainly concerned about the brother or the sister, so that I can be loving and not self-focused, especially in the moment when he needs love the most. So, number one, Jesus did not begin like we did. Number two, Jesus was made like us. Number three, Jesus suffered like us. He suffered like us. Being fully human, he suffered both with us and for us. Suffering is an important aspect of Jesus being fully human and saving us. As God only, He could not suffer. God is impassable. That's the theological word for it, Impassible. He's unable to be afflicted, unable to be moved by the creation, by humans that would try to assault Him or change Him. He's impassable. But not humanity. So Jesus becoming fully involved, not only a human body, but a reasoning soul and emotions and mind and will becoming fully involved with us, he entered into our world as man, our fallen world, which is under the curse of sin. And even though that Jesus himself is not a sinner, he was, as a creature, susceptible to the afflictions. The pains, the assaults, the sufferings of our world. A big part of him becoming human is subjecting himself to our world. He entered into our suffering and did so in two senses. One, he suffered with us. This is the he gets us part. He knows what it's like to suffer in created flesh and blood. And verse 10 says he was made perfect through his suffering. What does that mean? Made perfect. Does that strike you as odd? So, if we're saying Jesus was without sin, does the fact that he was made perfect imply that there was a time where he was imperfect in the sense of being a sinner? No. This language of perfection or completion is very important in Hebrews. That he was made perfect means that he was made ready or made complete for His calling. It relates to high priesthood imagery, where they would go through the the perfecting or the completion process to be made ready to be appointed as priest. He's made ready to be our champion, made ready to be our priest through His suffering. And having become man, He was not yet complete, not yet ready, but needed to be made ready, made complete, perfect through suffering. Which leads then to a second sense in which he suffered. This is for us. The suffering with us and suffering for us. Not only as man does he suffer with us, but as the God-man, he suffers for us. He suffers in our place. He suffers in our stead, as we sang a few minutes ago which leads to this connection between suffering and death. We saw that last week in verse 9, how suffering and death are connected. Verse 9 introduces the suffering of death, about Jesus dying for us in our place. By the grace of God, He tasted death for. This is a death for. Jesus not only experienced suffering with us, but He suffered for us. He not only gets us, He saves us, And He does that through death. So look at the rest of verses 14 and 15 and see these two achievements for us. So under this suffering, number three, He suffers with us and for us. And under Him suffering for us, there's two achievements, two ways that He suffers for us. We'll pick up in the middle of verse 14. Jesus shared in our humanity here that through death He might Number one, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, second, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, the first achievement through his suffering for us, through his human death, is that he defeated Satan. His suffering unto death conquers the one who had the power of death we should not forget this as an Advent theme. One of my favorite Advent texts, or one that we should keep in mind, is 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, same word, destroy the works of the devil. That's part of what's going on in Advent. He comes to conquer Satan. He comes to destroy the devil. How does that happen, though? How does he destroy the devil? Well... Right there in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, He appeared, that's Advent, He appeared in order to take away sins. So His destroying the devil and His taking away sins goes together. He destroys the devil by taking away our sins. The weapon that Satan had against us was unforgiven sin. Colossians 2 talks about the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. But through the suffering of death, Jesus set it aside at the cross. And in doing so, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan's hordes, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So through death at the cross, he triumphs over Satan, which he came to do in his advent. So the first achievement is destroying Satan. And second, Hebrews 2.15, is delivering us. How does he deliver us? Well, we might expect what follows in verse 17. And I wonder if we expect what follows in verse 18. So two final parts here. Verse 17 gives us one reason that he had to be made like us in every respect. Look at verse 17. So that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we had sinned we had need of covering, of treatment for our sins before the holy God. We had a record of debt that stood against us because we were humans with sin. So to rescue us, God needed not only to become fully man and suffer with us, but to suffer unto death for us. That his death for us, his brothers, might be in the place of what we deserved in death for our sins. That's what it means when the high priest makes propitiation for sins. The people's sin against the holy and infinitely worthy God deserve his righteous, omnipotent wrath. And in becoming human and in suffering with us and unto death for us, Jesus takes on that just penalty that we were deserved of death. He takes on the justice due us for our sins. That's verse 17. And then verse 18 gives us one final reason that's embedded in the first. If verse seventeen is true, Hebrews wants us to know verse 18 is true for us too, even though we might not expect it for why Jesus was made like us in every respect, including suffering unto death. So number one, Jesus as God did not begin like us. Number two, He was made like us in full humanity. Number three, He suffered like us, both with us and for us. And then finally, number four, Jesus helps us right now. Verse 17 is amazing because he deals with our sin. He gets us right with God. And verse 18 is amazing in that he's ready and eager to help us right now. He wants to help right now, this Advent. He makes atonement with his death, and he rises again and sends his spirit that he might help us in our struggles right now. Look at verse 18. Four, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus suffered, he's able to help us who suffer. That is, because he suffered unto death to atone for our sins, he is able to indwell us by his Spirit and draw near in our time of need, and help us whatever challenges, whatever tests, whatever trials, whatever sufferings we're going through right now in the struggle of the Christian life. He stands ready to help. He not only saves us out of sin's curse, but also through sin's temptations. He atones for our sins and stands ready to help and give us aid in our temptations and suffering. And he saved us from sin's guilt so that he might be poised to save us from sin's power. So, like Hebrews 12, 2, which we saw just a few weeks ago, we might say Jesus is not just founder He's not just archagos. He's not just beginner, not just champion of our faith. He's also the finisher. He's the beginner. And he's the finisher. Our champion not only leads the way and goes out ahead of us to face the foe, but he also doubles back. He comes to help. He comes to sustain. He comes to keep us. So let me close with this question. What help do you need this Advent? What is it right now? What's the temptation? What's the trial? Trials, right? If you can't think of any, you're naive, if you can think of more than one, then Welcome to normal Advent. What's testing your faith most right now? What's tempting you to sin or give up or become apathetic? What's your biggest need this Advent? In Advent, we don't just remember what He did in the past. Oh, yes, we remember that. But not only that, we also remember who He is in the present, right now for us. Christmas is not only a was, Christmas is an is. We get His help. He not only gets us, He helps us. So as we come to the table here on this second Sunday of Advent, Let's ask for his help afresh. What need do you bring to this table this morning? How do you need his help to persevere? The one who meets us at this table is fully God. The eternal second person of the eternal Godhead, who in His happy and expansive and generous and overflowing and gracious nature took on our humanity to come rescue us, and He suffered with us, and He suffered for us unto death, and He destroyed Satan, and He delivers us from our sins, and He rose again and ascended and is seated right now at God's right hand. ENTHRONED IN HEAVEN AND HE STANDS READY BY HIS SPIRIT TO HELP US IN THE FIGHT OF FAITH.